Welcome to Eczema Breakthroughs, brought to you by Global Parents for Eczema Research, or Cheaper. This show features conversations between parents of children with eczema and the world's leading scientists and researchers who study eczema. Global Parents for Eczema Research is an international network of parents that advocates for better treatments and management options for children with eczema. Jeeper is led and comprised of parents of children with eczema and was formed in 2015 to address the critical need for research that answers questions of importance to patients and families. Learn more about Jeeper and subscribe to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. I'm so happy to introduce our guest today, Professor Thomas Bieber, who is Chair and Director of the Department of Dermatology and Allergy at the University of Bonn in Germany. His background is unusual in that he has training in four unique areas, dermatology, allergy, dermatopathology, and drug regulatory affairs and drug development. With this special expertise, he's able to bridge basic science research, patient care, and new treatment development, so a really unique background. His most recent research has focused on biomarker discovery and precision medicine in allergic skin diseases, and he was a speaker on the topic of risk stratification at the recent Revolutionizing Atopic Dermatitis Global Conference, which um, Global Parents for Eczema Research was a collaborating partner this year. We are so excited to have him here today to discuss the latest science on precision medicine or personalized medicine for eczema. So, Dr. Bieber, welcome, and thank you for joining us. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here, and uh, I hope I will be able to um, provide some useful information for the audience, Uh, although I must say uh, we should be very careful because um, that that kind of approach, precision medicine, has not been really implemented in, in that particular disease. So we are at the very, very beginning of that new kind of era in the, in the management of this disorder. Yes, early days, but I think we're we're all really excited to see it see it take shape. So now I'm going to kick off with a few questions, and I'll ask that you be thinking about your questions and be ready to chime in when we open up the lines. So this first question has a bit of a long intro, so bear with me, but I'm a parent of a child with moderate to severe eczema, and I know most of our listeners are as well. And so as parents, oftentimes we hear from people about a miracle approach that cured their eczema or their child's eczema, only to find that the same approach doesn't work for us. And so we're continually reminded of the many different ways that eczema can appear and feel and how people respond differently to different treatments. And here are just a couple of examples from from my own experience. I found that some topical medicines seem to offer a benefit for some people, but others experience these as an intense burning sensation. Um, And and a new topical comes to mind here, but we don't know why. Why do some people respond one way and others a different way? And, you know, we know that not everyone responds to the new biologic treatment, dupixent, dupixent, while others see incredible results. And again, here we don't, we still don't quite understand why. Other patients seem to have rapid resolution of symptoms with antibacterial treatment, while others don't. What's different about their eczema, and how can we better target treatment? Right now, we have a largely trial and error approach to treating eczema, and this can be frustrating for patients because we waste time, we waste money, 
And we expend uh, what I would call hope on approaches that don't ultimately help. Um, and, and we can even have a sense of failure if the treatment doesn't work for us. Like, what's wrong with us? It feels like just another disappointment. So this is why we're so excited to have this time today to dig into the topic of variation in eczema, subtypes of eczema, and as you mentioned, this emerging field of personalized medicine. So I'd like to kick things off by asking you first to give us an overview of what we currently know about different types and manifestations of eczema. And I know this is still coming into view, as you mentioned, like it's sort of blurry or out of focus, but what are the ways that we can divide eczema into clinically meaningful or relevant categories? And I know this is going to be really hard to do without getting technical <laughs> into technical language, but if you could try, we would really, really appreciate it. Well, that's a, indeed a very complex issue. First, we know that the overall population of patients suffering from atopic dermatitis is a highly heterogeneous population. We know that the disease, and certainly I would say 60 to 70% of the patients starts quite early in childhood or even in infancy. That's the classical scenario. But we also know, and we have increasing evidence meanwhile, that there is a subgroup of patients who never had something like atopic dermatitis in childhood, but suddenly with the age of 20, 30, 40, and even much later, start to develop that particular disorder. So we also see patients, and we, we call this the adult onset in contrast to the typical childhood onset. And then we also see more in the last years because the overall population, of course, is getting older and older, we increasingly see patients who start to develop atopic dermatitis with, let's say, 65, 70, 80 years, which is quite unusual. But at least in our registry, and we have started a couple of years ago, a, a huge registry and biobanking research project trying to dissect that complexity of the disorder. And in that registry, for example, we meanwhile have 20% of overall of our atopic dermatitis patients who never had the, the disease in childhood but started the disease in adulthood for the first time. And some of them, uh, 4 to 5%, even start the disease at the age of 65 plus. So that's a completely new kind of aspect that we have. So this is one way to consider the, the heterogeneity of the disorder because we, we think, and we are working very hardly on that, we think that the mechanisms which are driving the inflammation in the skin, which may be true for the kids, may not be true for adults, um, and may certainly not be true for these very old very late onset that I mentioned, which is the 65-plus generation. We, we now start by this kind of research program to understand what are the main differences in the, the clinical aspects or the, how the patients look like, um, how the skin lesions look like, the distribution of the skin lesions, the predilection sites, all these aspects which are different from one age range to the next one. 
So another way to dissect that heterogeneity and that complexity is to look at the natural history of the disease it, itself. You just mentioned um, people who have a, a child or children at home with that disorder. And if you look at those kids who started the disease very early, let's say between six months and two years of age, the good news, clearly the good news is that in the majority of these kids, the disease probably will disappear either spontaneously or by treatment before roughly the age of 10 or before the puberty time. So 60 to 70% of the atopic dermatitis or eczema um, patients as child, child in childhood will lose the disease, uh, probably also permanently lose the disease. That's an important aspect. So this is a, another aspect in the heterogeneity. We have patients, for example, who had the disease very early in infancy and early childhood. Then they lost the disorder. They were completely free of any eczema. And then for reasons that we don't understand, the disease starts again in adulthood. Uh, this is another kind of scenario. Then we have other patients who start the disorder between seven and eight or 11 years, not very early, so in, in the middle of childhood. It's another subgroup, and we, we are currently trying to understand what makes the difference between that particular kind of subgroup and the patients who start very early in life. So you see there are a lot of different kind of ways to stratify the disorder. And last but not least, as you mentioned, one of the most important uh, aspect is the response to treatment. Uh, as you mentioned, there are some patients who are very nicely responding to typical uh, topical treatment like topical steroids, for example. They also respond typically to what we call TCIs or topical calcinarin inhibitors. There are two products on the market which are steroid-free. Now, when you consider the new kind of treatment, like Dupixent, for example, uh, this is a very interesting question because Dupixent is a so-called targeted therapy. That is, that is a, an antibody which is given to the patients. This antibody is targeting one particular kind of structure that we think, from an immunological point of view, that this structure is very important because it is involved in the pathways leading to inflammation. So if we are blocking that pathway, in most of the patients, there is a clinical response. However, when you look back and you look all the patients, let's say you have 10 patients that you have treated with Dupixent, you will have probably two to three patients who will good responders so they will get the drug and they will probably not need anything else. Just to pick scent every other week and most probably nothing else. No topical steroids, no other kind of topical treatment. That's on one part of the range of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the so-called non-responders. These are approximately from 10 patients, one to two patients who do not respond at all 
to Dupixent. And we have no explanation for this phenomenon. And the vast majority are somewhere in between, between the good responders and the no responders. And these are approximately 60% of the overall population of atopic dermatitis with moderate to severe form. So these patients, they are a little bit or are good responding to um, to uh, Dupixent, but in order to fully control the disorder, they still need some topical treatment. So they need the combo. They need Dupixent and topical steroids or topical calcinurin inhibitor in order to really fully control the disorder. So these are the different ways that we currently are looking the disorder from different kind of uh, aspects. And these are also the ways that we are using in order to stratify this complex population. Probably in the near future, we will probably be able to predict, hopefully to predict the response of each individual patient to a given new kind of treatment because we will be able to understand the background of the disease, the mechanisms behind the driving force of the inflammatory reaction. And based on this information, we can provide a kind of personalized treatment in order to better control the disorder. Thank you for that very thorough answer. So to paraphrase, it sounds like the ways that we have currently for stratifying atopic dermatitis are through age of onset, one, and in fact, response to treatment, two. So it's not as though we are able to stratify according to mechanism of disease at this point and then match those patients to a treatment, but rather their response to a treatment is helping us divide them into different categories. It's not sort of the other way around yet. Not yet. I mean, we are working and many are working on that. We are, step by step, we are understanding the difference in the immune response, which is the driving force of the chronic inflammation. Just to give you an example, we know that, for example, in small kids, what we call the Th2 or T2 response is extremely important. It's probably the most dominant mechanism. While in older patients, um, there is kind of T2 immune inflammation in the background, but probably something else, which may overdrive potentially that T2 response. And that also may explain why some patients do not at all respond to this new kind of treatment like to Pixent. But um, we, we think that in the future, uh, based on biomarker discovery, we could you know, assign a particular kind of immunological profile to each individual patient. And based on that information, we will be in a much better shape to provide the best possible treatment for that particular individual patient. That's great. And so I'm gonna ask a a follow-up question here and then um, I'll, I'll see if there's a question on the line. I mean, what are the ways that we have now of being able to pinpoint in some way, even a crude way, to know what type of eczema a patient might be dealing with. I think that the audience and the patients suffering from AD or the parents from kids suffering from that disorder should basically understand one important message. When 
the, the patients come to me and ask me, what is the origin of that disorder? What, what is the, the background which explains that disorder? And um, the, the best response to that question, which is quite complex, in fact, is to simplify the things the much you can. And to explain to the patients that, in fact, there are two main issues which may explain atopic dermatitis. The first one is, and you alluded to that, is the barrier function. So these patients typically have either a so-called filigree mutation or something else uh, in terms of genetic background, which is either or not associated to filigree mutations, which explain in part the barrier dysfunction. All the patients with atopic dermatitis perfectly well known that they have a problem with a very sensitive dry skin. We, we know now currently more than 50 different genes which may be involved more or less in that, in that barrier dysfunction. Filigene is just one of, of, of many, many others. The other side of the, the, the mechanisms driving that disease is the inflammation. But the inflammation is also responsible mainly for the itching sensation, for example. Um, that's the reason why when we explain the disorder to our patients and to the parents, we are always highlighting these two aspects because these two aspects also have a tremendous importance in understanding the overall management of the disorder. In fact, the, 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 the three pillars in the management of atopic dermatitis are very simple. So the first pillar in the management is trying to identify the provocation factors of the disorder in one particular individual. And this can be manifold. So this explains also why the patients are so different from one individual to the next one. The provocation factors can be very different, different from one patient to the other. In children, for example, we know that disease is very often is driven by food allergy, for example, which is much less the case in adults. I, I'm not, I cannot remember of one single adult patient who really has an atopic dermatitis, which is due to food allergy, while in kids, this is quite often. So this is an example of this diversity and the provocation factor. So the identification of the provocation factors for each individual patient is absolutely key because otherwise you are treating, 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 but you are not trying to get rid of the provocation factors. At the end, you are not really satisfied. This is the first pillar. The second pillar is what I mentioned is the dry sensitive skin, which is primarily driven by the genetic background. And that's the reason why Meanwhile, we are educating the patients to always use emollients and appropriate skincare. This is absolutely mandatory in the management of the disorder. Even if we have very potent steroids, very potent new kind of treatments, the patients need that particular kind of skincare in the management. That's the second pillar. And the third pillar in the management is 
the very consequent fight against the chronic inflammation that, can, that you can reach depending on the severity, either by topical treatment or for the more moderate to severe patients by any kind of systemic treatment that are or will be available in the near future. So these three pillars are extremely important to understand and the, the provocation factors, again, are very individual. There is not one size fits all in that business. For each patient, you have to find out, and this is really a kind of investigative Sherlock Holmes work that has to be done in order to understand what could be the provocation factors in one given individual. That's probably the most difficult part in the management of this disorder. Yes, and thank you for breaking things down that way. I will say identifying the triggers, as we call them, or provocation factors, yep. is exceedingly complicated because you're trying to control for so many things and a child is exposed to a million things in a day and trying to, you know, tease out what it was that caused the flare is something that it, it, it drives the parent crazy trying to figure that out. And in fact, in surveys, we've seen that a majority of even adult patients still don't know what triggers their eczema. And I think that's the, the, the microbiome or the dysbiosis of the microbiome most probably plays a role very early in the history of the disorder, particularly in infancy and early childhood, but probably not later on in, 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 in childhood, puberty, or even in adults. So I think that from a mechanistical point of view, it makes sense to try to impact on the microbiome, but not in all the patients. It does probably doesn't make sense in all the patients. It probably makes sense very early in the initial phase of the disorder, at the very beginning. Whether this is at three months or six months or two years, that's probably the, the window of opportunity, I would say, where it makes sense to try to have an influence on the composition of the microbiome. Later on, I'm not sure that this makes sense because I think that very late, the Staph aureus particularly, this is more bystander um, than more than, you know, something which is initially involved uh, or further involved in a chronic lesion. Um, there is more and more evidence that Staph aureus probably has a key role to play in the very early natural, uh, very early phase of the natural history of the disorder, but not later. Hi, this is Christy. Hi. Hi. And I was wondering, you were discussing um, about there's a, a change in adulthood that um, is different than in childhood that links the food allergies to the AD, that it's not so... Um, prevalent in adults than it is in children, mm -hmm. and do they know what changes those are that or differences? Yes, um, we we currently evaluate that in childhood, food allergy is probably relevant in thirty to fifty percent of the cases, and we are speaking really about infants and, and very early childhood. 
so up to the year up to two years or so so this this is probably the the age in which uh, food allergy is most probably relevant this is vanishing by the time and uh, instead of food allergy the people also become more and more sensitized to environmental allergens classical environmental allergens like for example house dust mites or um, cat dander or any pollens uh, any kind of you know typical environmental um, allergens so the the allergic profile the sensitization profile is changing over the time and that's the reason why it's so important to consider atopic dermatitis not as a screenshot because to, we, we have to admit as dermatologists and the pediatricians also when they see the patients for the first time you know they see these patients in a very particular kind of um, time point typically they don't know what was before and as I mentioned they will not predict what happens after so that, that screenshot that they have um, is just part of the whole story and what we currently know is that the disorder in one given patient with a chronic disorder like atopic dermatitis from an immunological point of view this is a kind of dynamic process that means that the disease starts immunologically very early with particular kind of immune response and that immune response is I wouldn't say maturating but at least it's changing over time and that's probably the reason why at some point this could explain that that vast majority of the kids suffering from atopic dermatitis will lose the disorder before the age of 10 because the changes in the immune system which is dynamic at that age range will lead to a, that kind of remission so we, we still do not understand that phenomenon and we still do not understand why in 40% of the kids the disease continues so it's not a kind of transient kind of story but it's a continuous study until adulthood and we now try to understand from the biomarker what is the difference for example between the immune response in the kid let's say with five, year, five years old kid and another kid which is 11 or 15 years old we, we have good evidence that there are differences but we, we don't understand how this works how the immune response is changing what are the mechanisms which are inducing that evolution of the immune response in each individual patient but this may also explain why food allergy becomes less and less important by the time while other allergies for example against house dust mite or pollens uh, birch pollen or other trees pollens become of increasing importance as trigger factors for individual patients and finally when you are going into adulthood we know that typically pollen allergens like trees birch pollen typically can induce atopic dermatitis uh, in many patients but also house dust mite and many other kind of environment allergens can induce the disease but we also have a subpopulation again of patients where 
we have the feeling that nothing is playing a role from him from outside. So we, we have the feeling that in a subgroup, and again, we are speaking about stratification of these patients, and this is particularly a case for adult patients, uh, these subgroup of patients are probably not triggered anymore by anything which is coming from the environment, but probably the disease is, you know, a self-chronic, uh, a kind of self-chronic disorder, uh, which is a kind of perpetuating chronic inflammation, uh, which does not stop by itself. And these are typically the patients who have a long history, the long duration of the disorder, non-stop chronic inflammation over years, which have reached that particular stage where you have the feeling that there are typically no more trigger factors to be identified. The disease is continuing just by itself. Thank you. I think that what I take away from this discussion so far is that there are more layers here. You know, it's like, what is the factor that is triggering the condition versus perpetuating it? How is the immune response changing over time? What part of it is uh, inflammation related? What part is microbiome related? I mean, there's just a, this is an exceedingly complex condition that just has so many factors at play. Yes, that's true. That is another point that we did not mention so far. We we think that the um, staph aureus most probably has to be considered as one of the most important factors for the sensitization process that happens from the skin during atopic dermatitis. So we, we now have good reasons to believe that in particularly in the very early um, age of onset, infancy and until the age of two or so, the, the chronic inflammation in the skin itself combined potentially to signals delivered by the stuff and of course the allergens present, uh, particularly food allergen, that this situation leads the immune system to to be sensitized against foodstuff and environmental allergens through the skin. So this is a very important notion to understand for the parents. That is that as long as the skin is inflamed, there is a kind of open window which allows the penetration of many allergens, including food allergens into the skin and that the combination with stuff aureus which is present in the same time will kind of amplify the immune response against these different allergens and that's what we see in the natural course of the disorder because if you look very early in the disorder you will hardly see any allergies. The allergies are emerging in the course of the disorder of eczema. 
Hmm? At the very beginning, there is no allergy. If you are not controlling the disorder, if you just let the disorder go and spread out on the skin the inflammation, not fighting consequently against the inflammation, then you are in fact opening the door for this sensitization. Yes, and I know actually what you just said is really important, and we've started to hear about that a little bit on these podcast episodes, but I don't think that message is out there. Um, It's not a very widespread message yet, and so I think there's work to be done to share that with a broader group of providers so that it does, you know, reach parents to understand that there are these windows of risk. Um, And, you know, atopic dermatitis or eczema may start out as just like a smoldering you know, fire, a, a small flame, but then when you start adding staph, back, you know, bacteria or microbiome imbalance um, and exposure to al- allergens, you're kind of fueling the fire, and once it gets big enough, it's, once it's that runaway wildfire, um, the, the implications are, are much more broad and far-reaching, and in fact, it shapes the immune system in ways that we're, we're starting to learn about. So, um, this is a perfect description. This is a perfect description of what happens, clearly. With that, have a good evening and day, and talk to you soon. Thank you very much for listening. Have a nice day. Bye bye. Thank you. You've been listening to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast. To learn more and join Global Parents for Eczema Research, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit us at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast.